Psalm 1 is where I want you to open your Bibles to. Um, And we've already celebrated some really good news this morning. Getting to hear uh, just about the Collins family and getting to celebrate communion. What a way to kind of prep our time to jump into some scripture and read it together. Let me turn your mind to this question. How much is knowledge worth? Think about when you need sound advice. Can you put an actual dollar number to knowledge? When you think about uh, life and you think about different stages in your life, um, even though there's probably a market value to certain kinds of knowledge, there are seasons where it might become more uh, worth something more to you than something else. So for instance, you need, a, you need a trustworthy mechanic to look at your car. How much is that worth to you? If you've ever been ripped off by someone who tells you you need a bunch of stuff fixed that you don't need fixed, you might think, you know what, it's worth it to have someone who's trustworthy and pay them a little more. Or someone who says, I got this! And Uncle Joey doesn't know anything about cars, actually, and he made it way worse. It's worth having someone who might be knowledgeable, right? How about moving to a new city or a new country? If you've ever done that, knowing the right place to rent, knowing the right location, where, what is this neighborhood actually like? That's some, in, that's some valuable information to you. Now, there's a going rate, there's a market value for knowledge, isn't there? Think about higher education. There's a wide range of it, but there's sort of a general expense for getting trained in something, right? Um, hopefully you don't, but maybe you need legal advice going on right now. You need counsel, right? That's information. That's knowledge. And so you would pay some amount to, to, to have that person help you out. So knowledge actually does have a number to it. Um, and what I want you to think about is this, that people would pay loads of money, rightfully so, for some different kinds of knowledge, The Bible speaks about something called wisdom and understanding. And wisdom and understanding are similar to knowledge. They might sort of overlap with knowledge in some ways. But isn't wisdom and and understanding something altogether different than just knowledge? Yeah. The Bible says this, that we are to search for wisdom more than gold and precious jewels. We live in gold country, like part of our history of California that I learned growing up in the schools around here is people flocked to our area. Why? For little flakes of of metal. They left their family. They, they, They risked it all to come and find a few flakes of metal in the ground. And they put a lot of diligent effort towards it. The Bible says that we ought to do that um, all the more for wisdom. Something that we understand as Christians, and if you're new to church, new to God, let me enlighten you on something, that God gives a wealth of wisdom to us, and on the one hand, it's free and accessible, on the other other hand, it's going to cost you something, okay? It's not going to cost you in the same way that a college degree will cost you. That will cost you some money, and you may be in debt for years and years and years and years to come. It's not going to cost you in the same way that it might cost to get legal counsel, but it does cost you. Here's what the wisdom of God will cost you, okay? It will cost you time, it will cost you effort, and it will cost you trust. 
For some of us, the currency of trust, we feel really bankrupt in it, right? You put your trust in something or someone, they burn you and you hold it close. And you say, I'm not trusting anymore. It will cost you time, effort, and trust to access the wisdom, the great wealth of wisdom that God has granted to us. Let me have you sort of go with me on a little mental journey, okay? I want you to imagine the Bible as a giant mansion on a beautiful property. It's a walled property that is very defined and clearly, it's very clear what is in this property and what is not, but it's vast and it's expansive. It's a huge estate. On this property are walkways and well-kept waterfalls. There are sweeping lawns and sprawling gardens. As you kind of wander around the estate, your eye catches um, roads that a car could drive on, but also little paths that sort of dart off into the brush. And we haven't even gotten to the actual mansion yet, which itself is big and expansive and vast. Now, certain parts of it, the front lawn, the kitchen, the ballroom, the dining room, and the playroom, they're all well-used and populated. Lots of people in there, and you know those areas really, really well. These are the parts of Scripture that are most often quoted, most often talked about, most often studied, most often written about. In fact, if you're holding a physical Bible right now, you can't do this digitally anymore. But if you're holding a physical Bible right now, your Bible tells you the favorite parts of the Bible to you. Because your pages wear over time. I remember as a kid sitting in church, and truth be told, I didn't listen to the guy like me very often. Um, And then God's humor is like he puts me up in front of you. So go figure. But while I'm there, my brain's trying to engage and do something. And so I remember looking at my dad's Bible, my mom's Bible, and looking at Bibles. And you could see certain parts where they're kind of brown and kind of frayed. You can actually see the parts that are used the most in your Bible. So it is with the mansion and the state. There are loads of parts that are well used. But here's the question for you. How can you not be curious? How can any of us not be curious about the dusty corners of lesser known rooms? Parts to the garden that go off in all directions. Here's what's amazing about this. In fact, if you're If you have a Bible with you, hold your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one sitting in front of you that if you don't own a Bible, take it. That is our gift to you. We would be thrilled if you would take it. If you are all digital, hold your phone or your iPad or whatever you're holding and hold that in your hand, okay? Physically hold something in your hand. We have been given access to it all, the entire estate, inside and outside, all of it. The owner has seen fit to preserve it and keep it for us. The owner of the state is telling us, go and enjoy and explore. It's here to be discovered, to be lived in, to be walked through. Your Bible is not made to sit on a nightstand or a desk It's not meant to be put on the mantle and admired from afar. Your Bible is meant to be lived in and tested and trusted. In fact, your Bible is meant to be delighted in. Psalm 1. Turn there if you're not there already. Psalm 1. Just listen to this. I'll give you one second to get there. 
Psalms in the middle of your Bible, one is the first number we're looking at. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Catch this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Did you catch it? The word of God is to be delighted in. All kinds of good comes from it. But we don't even... We don't even go to God's word necessarily for what will come of it. That just comes. That's a fruit. It's to be delighted in. We're starting a brand new series this morning. And what it's going to do is it's going to span, I think, about three years. Okay. Now, hang with me for one second. That sounds like a long time. For some of you, like that's a chunk of your life. It's going to span three years, but we're only going to come, we're going to kind of revisit this idea for two or three weeks at a time every six months or so. So even though it's going to sort of span three years, it won't take three years to get through this whole series, okay? And the title of it is Reading Over Jesus's Shoulder. Reading Over Jesus's Shoulder. What this series is about, or or, or sort of the motive behind it, is long-haul growth. It's planting a seed in one season, watering it, tending to it, nurturing it, expecting there to be fruit in another season, right? Um, So... My, my heart behind this, I'm going to sort of walk through. Those of you who are like note takers, it's all blanks this morning. I'm going to give you some numbered things. Some of you are like, I like numbers. I want, I want to know I'm on track, okay? Right now, you're just writing whatever. You could draw a tree. You could sit there. But we'll, we'll get to some things to, to, to write down. Reading over Jesus' shoulder has to do with this. Here's the tagline. Before the Bible is yours to apply, it is his to fulfill. So consider this. The first two-thirds of your Bible we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible Jesus read. Why? Because he was busy fulfilling the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet, right? The earliest New Testament books were written probably around 40 AD. So the Bible Jesus read is your whole first two-thirds of your Bible. Here's my guess. If I were to walk around to each one of you and either digitally looked at the page counts that you went to in your Old Testament on your digital Bible or looked at your physical Bible... I have a hunch, and this isn't a judgment, it's just a hunch. I have a hunch there may be pages that are still stuck together in your Old Testament. Meaning they've never been separated before, and you may have owned the Bible for quite some time. Again, don't hear judgment in that. That's probably just a fact. Most Christians I know don't know their Old Testament super well. And there's some reasons for that that we're going to kind of get into, but this series is going to really help us with that. We're going to keep coming back to this reality. The Bible is all about Jesus. That is not news to anyone who's here for long. We know that. We talk about that all the time. But isn't it true that some parts seem really obviously about Jesus and other parts don't seem obvious about Jesus? And that's why we go to some parts that are easier to understand, easier to grab hold of, easier to connect with than the Old Testament. Without the lens of Jesus and his gospel, 
Gospel just means good news. Without the lens of Jesus and his gospel, we misread and misunderstand the entire Bible. So if you don't have that lens of Jesus, that lens of proclamation gospel, you will, you will go in crazy town directions with the Bible. And you know people who've gone in crazy town directions with the Bible. Some of you have been rescued from cults. Cults are things that take a portion of the scripture, and we'll kind of get into this, and misquote it and misunderstand it and misapply it and lead people down some really bad places. Every part of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Let me show you some really obvious ones, okay? Some of the obvious ones are promises. There are promises made that point to Jesus. Like when the Old Testament promises, there is a bloodline coming from David, and there will be a king and a kingdom that will never, ever end. You read that in the Old Testament, Christian, and you go, that's Jesus. That's it. That's, we, we know that part of the story. Because we're living on the back end of the cross and the ascension, so we understand that. How about prophecies? Prophecies that speak of Jesus. Some are really, really obvious. The section of the suffering servant in Isaiah perfectly describes crucifixion hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented by the Romans. Nail-pierced hands, crown of thorns, these kinds of things. And then thirdly, there's patterns that foreshadow the work of Jesus. So we just had a Seder dinner in here um, on sort of Good Friday week. It was on Tuesday of that week. And as we walked through that, you can see the the sacrificial uh, system of the Old Testament, the Passover lamb as sort of this front runner to Jesus coming. Jesus gets on the scene and John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you were raised as a Jew, doing the annual sacrifice and understanding the scapegoat and all that goes into that, that is a mind-blowing statement. What did we just celebrate? The precious blood of Jesus at communion who took away the sin of the world. That's a pattern that very clearly points to Jesus. But here's what's incredible. Jesus makes it clear that it's all about him. Not just the obvious ones, but the obscure pieces to it. It's all about him. Let me take you back to Luke. In Luke, a couple of disciples are walking back home on that first Easter Sunday. They have left Jerusalem, where all these events took place. They're heading back to, uh, to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. And they're discussing uh, the resurrection when a, sa- a, a stranger kind of sidles up to him and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And what they say, they go, uh, are you like the only one who doesn't know what's going on right now? Like, like literally world history has just changed. And don't you love Jesus? Jesus has sort of hidden his identity from them. It's Jesus. And here's what he says. What things? What things? This is the son of God who just rose from the dead and now he's on sort of his victory march before the ascension and he invites conversation. He invites exploration. He invites them to sort of narrate, how are you perceiving these things? What things? What are you talking about? And they just go, what? And they, and then, and they tell the whole thing. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus lays out his response to their interpretation of the events. 
Jesus lays out for me, for you, today in 2022, a foundation of how to understand the whole of the New Testament. And he rebukes those who don't understand it this way. Okay, if you're taking notes, just jot this down. You can look at it later, make sure I'm not lying. Luke 24 25 says this, and he said to them, O foolish ones, these two disciples of Jesus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Catch this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus not only lays out how we should be reading, but he rebukes those who miss these things. He says, it's all right there. Did he go through each page of the Old Testament, each scroll? Of course not. But what he's saying is, as you are reading through it, God's writing a cohesive story. It's all right there. Let me help you uh, see it. Let me show it to you. Let me reveal it to you. A second time, just a couple verses later in Luke 24, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Here's what's so inviting. Jesus today is inviting us in to open our minds to understand the scriptures. Everyone in this room needs more of that. We haven't arrived yet. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, these are three genres. Each of them sort of fit together to play this important part in the story that God is telling us. I love this quote from Philip Yancey. He says this, he says, today we need an Emmaus Road experience. That's what I just read to you. These two disciples are on the way to Emmaus, and Jesus tells them things. He says, today we need an Emmaus Road experience in reverse. These disciples knew Moses and the prophets, but could not conceive how they might relate to Jesus the Christ. The modern church knows Jesus the Christ, catch this, but is fast losing any grasp of Moses and the prophets. I would say that's generally true of my Christian upbringing. Now, I went to Bible college and studied these things, and so to get the grade and to do what I'm doing, I sort of was forced into it. Being forced into it, I'm really happy I was. Because now I go there voluntarily. So we will be reading over Jesus' shoulder. We will train ourselves to ask, how would Jesus read this? Before it's mine to apply, it's his to fulfill. Could it be that we're just like those disciples on Emmaus and we're heading outside of Jerusalem? You know what happens after Jesus meets with them and opens their minds? What do they do? Anyone remember? They repent. Repent just means turn around. They're going to Emmaus because the show's over. Their, their Lord is dead. Boom, they repented. A repent is a 180 degrees. It says that they ran back to Jerusalem. To go tell people and be a witness and make proclamation and say, man, we understand this now. I think the same is possible for us. We might have experienced some things, read some things, and we're actually going in the wrong direction. doesn't mean we're not saved. 
But our focus and our mindset and our countenance is completely off because we don't see it. Let me warn you that this series is going to require some effort. I will do my very best to not make this like super boring Bible nerd academic. I don't think it has to be. I'm actually really excited. Can you tell I'm excited? I'm actually really, really excited to be going into this with you because I think it will actually unlock and link some things in your minds that will be really revolutionary, but it will take some effort. I just spent the week exploring the Pacific Ocean, uh, which is not super unusual for me. That's a regular occurrence on my part, but here's what was unusual. I was exploring the warm part of the Pacific Ocean, and that was really, really great. I'm used to putting on layers of neoprene so I don't freeze to death, Um, and I want you to consider the ocean and the Bible. Okay, so is the Bible kind of like Villa Montavo in, in uh, Saratoga? Some of you are, are clever and you saw that that was Villa Montavo. Uh, is it like Villa Montavo? Yeah, it is. Is it like the ocean? Yes. It's both. Now, there's lots of ways to access the ocean. And this was really, really apparent to me this week. So let me just, just kind of go with me here. Um, first of all, the ocean is there for all and it's free of charge, right? If you live in Iowa, you have to get like, I guess you have to get to the ocean. But basically it's there for free. Free entertainment. That's why large families spend lots of time at the beach, right? That is, our, that is our entertainment most weekends. Now, there's different ways to participate and enjoy the beauty of the ocean. I saw plenty of people, and maybe some of this is, is you, that the way you enjoy the ocean is you stay on dry land and you observe it, and you take pictures and you enjoy it. And you're like, that's close enough for me. I'm good, and that's fine. There are some people who wander into tide pools. We went to a place uh, where the water is about knee deep. It's protected by a rock reef. There's no possible way a giant shark could eat you or a giant wave could take you out. So there are people there wandering around knee to thigh deep. They have a mask on and they're doing this. And they're looking around. What shocked them is me and my son come swimming by. Like we just were like, we're like grabbing the sand and just kind of swimming around all that for a little bit because it was really warm. He was cold. Cold in Hawaii. I know it's weird. Um, That's a really good way to enjoy the ocean if you don't have a bad back, right? Or if you want to have a bad back in 10 years, you just do that. You go and you just bend over and you spend hours like that, reapply sunscreen to your back and do it some more, okay? Doing that in this place, spectacular. Honestly, I mean like, easiest way to get in and like, whoa, I'm in a fish tank. That's really, really, really incredible. Um, that is, uh, that's what I'd call um, maybe peewee snorkeling, okay? Like that's just like the very beginner level of, of people, you know, peewee snorkeling. There's JV snorkeling. Here's what JV snorkeling is. Um, there are some people who very clearly don't like deep water and, or they can't swim. And so they have a noodle, like a little dollar store noodle around them or a big life vest that says, I'm a JV snorkeler. That's what they're shouting without knowing it. And what they do is they hover around the top. And if you watch them, they never get too far from the shore, right? Now they're enjoying something actually different than this person. Peewee snorkeler enjoys some stuff, but it's pretty limited, right? JV snorkeling, you're out there, you're actually getting to see it. You're kind of getting, you know, this. You're kind of just getting pushed and moved with the water. You're there but it's all pretty surfacey stuff, right? Amazing, amazing way to enjoy snorkeling. That transforms people's lives. They're like, I'm gonna go home and snorkel. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> yes, I am. No, you're not. Why? 
Because Santa Cruz is freezing cold and you won't see a whole lot of stuff from the top. You will not snorkel when you get home from Hawaii. None of you. All right. You're like, Dave is ticked off about snorkeling. I'm not really. Um, All right. Here's varsity snorkeling. What's varsity snorkeling? It's just going under. Right? So with a little bit of breath control and a little bit of coordination, a little bit of effort, what you do is you dive. So you just go, whoop, big breath, snorkel around. What can you do under there? You can go through little tunnels. You can look under crevices. You can sit there and hover and do all kinds of things. And then when you come up, what do you do? Like a whale, you blow all that stuff out. Let your breathing come back and then do it again. You doing that, your delight in the ocean, like you can just do that. Like that was my, like that's my vacation, by the way. Snorkel, fins, mask, that's it sunscreen. That's the cost of a vacation in Hawaii to me. I, that, that is just so enjoyable to, to, to do that over and over and over again. Now, it goes beyond that. And by the way, that comes with some cost. Here's the cost of that. Once in a while, you'll have pain in your ears because of pressure. Once in a while, you'll, you'll feel that panic of like, I really need to breathe right now, and the surface is up at the roof. Once in a while, you will take a gulp of seawater because when you go and then go to breathe in, a wave is hitting you and you're like, and you've got to do all that. So there's a little bit more of a cost to varsity snorkeling. Some of you are like, like already, you've lost the sermon. You're like scheduling a trip to Hawaii now. Um, all right, let me move on one more. Okay. The Bible's an ocean. Go with me. This is the Bible. Beyond JV snorkeling, is there more to explore? Yeah. Let's talk about scuba diving for a second. Scuba diving is snorkeling on steroids, right? Um, Now, there's a whole new set of skills uh, to master. There's a whole new set of knowledge to study and understand. And it is so incredibly worth it to do that. The work of getting certified to scuba dive is paid off weeks from then or months from then when you jump off of a boat into warm water And you don't have to limit yourself to the amount of time you can hold your breath. You just get to be under there, doing all kinds of things in this three-dimensional world, and it's really, really spectacular. I was there visiting my brother, who's been a certified scuba diver for a long time. I was there with my oldest son, who's a certified scuba diver. I'm a certified scuba diver. We got to do a boat dive. We were doing a boat dive, and at 90 feet on the ocean floor, the reef has different kinds of things. Giant eels that are way bigger than your arm that are like, ah, and all kinds of cool stuff. We were actually out there to, to dive a shipwreck. There's all kinds of wreckage around Pearl Harbor because of the attack in 1941. So we're actually out there to go dive a shipwreck, which would have just been amazing. And we get there, and who's parked there? There's like little anchors out in the ocean. Who's using the parking spot? The Navy. Guess who gets precedence? The Navy. The Navy's out there doing demolition type practice and stuff. And so I'm sitting here going, oh, I hope they leave soon. Because we were sort of hovering and waiting there to see if they would leave. And it dawned on me this, that if you have peewee snorkeling, JV snorkeling, varsity snorkeling, scuba diving, Navy divers show the novice that any recreational scuba diver is. Because the stuff they do requires years of diligent training and practice and whatnot. 
Long story short, we didn't get to do the shipwreck. That was a bummer. They left too late. Now, I want you to imagine that Navy diver, my son and I, Varsity, JV, Peewee, are all eating a meal that night talking about the ocean. We're all just bubbling with excitement. What we saw and how it was and all the fun that we had. Is there actual experiential, tangible difference between that range of people? Absolutely. Same ocean? Absolutely. Here's what's really powerful. Each one of those required some more level of effort to explore and enjoy, right? So the person who's on shore didn't even really have to dry off. The person who's here took their mask off, dried their face and legs, and they're done. JV and varsity snorkeler, they might be a little sore the next day, a little bit more sunburn. They had to put, you know, rinse gear off, a little bit of stuff. Scuba, kind of more. Navy, I don't even know because I'm not in the Navy. So experientially, very different stuff. Here's what's amazing, too, to think about. Every single one of those people, even the most experienced person exploring the ocean, no one discussing their exploration of the ocean is an expert. None of them have mastered the ocean. Would you agree with me? They're only experts in relation to one another. Is a Navy diver more experienced and more of an expert than Pee Wee Snorkeler? Of course! But have they mastered the ocean? No. So they're an expert in relation to one another, not, not to the subject at hand. The Bible's kind of like that. We have a saying around here that we have no mature disciples at Neighborhood Bible Church. We have a whole bunch of maturing disciples at Neighborhood Bible Church. And we have a handful on any given Sunday who are not yet disciples. They're just checking things out. They're not maturing. They're sort of pre-disciples looking at what's being claimed and talked about. We say that because of this kind of idea. As we go in and explore the Bible further and deeper, it will take some tools and some things, but we're not, we're not there to become somehow experts above everyone else. In fact, we're going to look at what Jesus says to that. Here's what's interesting. The snorkel, and for scuba diving, Darth Vader, the regulator, those are the tools that allow us to explore something way different than just sitting above the surface, Right? The tools that are going to get us on our journey over these next few years is genres, G-E-N-R-E, genre, as in categories of literature, different kinds of writing that are going on. We've already seen Jesus refer to this. When he says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and says that all that has to be fulfilled, here's what that's code for. Law, prophet, Psalms, Old Testament. He's giving you three genres of writing. And he's saying that these are the things that are fulfilled in me. Diving in and understanding genres goes a long way to how we read, understand, and apply the Bible. And conversely, um, I'll I'll get, get, get to that in a second. Let me have you look at this for a second. You see these little shapes? All these little shapes represent different genres of the Bible. Do you see how they fit together? They fit together and they're different sizes. That's because the Bible has large chunks of scripture that are one kind of genre and other genres that are sort of small and you can break it down into forms and other sort of subgenres. 
We're not going to get crazy nerdy on all that kind of stuff. But just beginning to understand where you are will really go a long way for Bible interpretation. In fact, I had a teacher at San Jose Christian College, and he would say this, with biblical interpretation, context is king. Remember that, context is king. What does context mean? It literally means with the text, con. With the text. So context is king when you're trying to interpret the Bible. This is why you've got to be so careful when someone quotes a verse. If someone quotes a verse out of the Bible, and I form a whole big thing on it, a biblically-minded person should say, I'm just going to read just the chapter or even just the paragraph that came from. Many, many times people grab something out of the Bible and misquote God. If you were to just, well, don't run this experiment because it will get bad. But if you want someone mad, quote them out of context. Even the most mild-mannered among us, if I were to misquote Brooklyn, and Brooklyn's not really mild-mannered, but she pretends she is. I've seen her do sports. If I, were to, if I were to misquote Brooklyn, we were having a conversation, and I grabbed a sentence that she said that we both knew was not what she meant. There was way more to it, and I grabbed just that sentence, and I said it, and it made her look bad. Brooklyn would be arms-waving mad about it. No, that is not, wait a minute, especially if we both knew that I'm lying. Am I directly quoting her? Yes. Am I lying? Yes. If any time the lower courts, meaning man-made courts, says something is illegal and you could get thrown in jail for it, think about God's higher law. So it is illegal to write something untrue about someone. If I were to put that in print, I'd be accused of, of libel. And I could go to prison for that. I'd be fined for that. It's illegal. God's higher law says don't slander. God's higher law says don't lie. So it's lying to quote verbatim what Brooklyn is saying and use it out of context. So here's the question. How does God feel when human beings quote him verbatim? And they say it in complete authority. And yet actually knowingly misquote him. Actually misrepresent him. Because we're made in God's image and we can imagine how that would make us feel, we can get a little sense of how God feels about that. God has the authority and the power to go, Boop, you're done. I'm so glad none of you are God. <laughs> There'd be a lot of unexplained deaths happening all the time. You're done. You did that once. I was gracious. No more. Jot down Proverbs 35 to 6. You can turn there if you want. It's an easy book to find. It's near your Psalms. Proverbs 35, two verses. <clears throat> if you're writing in your Bible, remember it's to be used and explored and dived into and delighted in. You can write in it, you can circle it, you can highlight it. It doesn't need to sit on the mantle in perfect condition. It says, every word of God proves true. You might want to highlight or underline or circle the word every. Every word of God proves True. Anyone know how many words are in your Bible? Neither do I. I've never counted. <laughs> a lot. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Catch this. Very next verse. Do not add to his words. 
lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Every word means that learning it all is worthwhile. Pee-wee snorkelers, look at me. There's more to the scriptures than peeking in once a week and kind of looking around. You peek in once a week and look around, it'll be pretty amazing. There's way more to it. Every word is going to prove true. When he says don't add, it means don't put words in God's mouth. Don't quote out of context. Doesn't it stand to reason if you don't want to take something out of context, you have to understand the context? Here's what's really beautiful about this. This isn't academic, nerdy stuff. You're like, I don't even like to read. That's okay. I know what you like to do. You like to relate. You were born to relate. What we're talking about is a relationship with Jesus Christ, a conversation. The way I would get to understand the context of what Brooklyn was even talking about is to close my mouth, be near Brooklyn, and have a conversation and sort of be around her, hear what she was talking about, listen for understanding. All of that would gain me the context. That's what I'm wanting for us, church. Genres unlock so much understanding. I was a paperboy as a kid. Yes, I was that old that I, I checked, like, just like in the movies. I was that kid on the BMX bike. And in a newspaper, it's super clear because they just have it by sections of what genre you're reading it in. So in an old newspaper, if you were to ever pick one up, here's what you would see. Sports section, local news, editorials, comics, obituaries, ads that sort of fall all over the place. I hated Wednesdays because Wednesdays was three times heavier than any other day of the week because it had all the ads in it. Classifieds. Every single section is using the same 26 letters of the alphabet in completely different ways. You're reading the obituaries to try to understand uh, what happened in sports. Unless someone from sports died, you're not getting much out of it. You're reading the ads to get truth. There's a little hint. Advertisers lie sometimes. If you're reading the ads to get the news, you're probably missing something, right? Genres unlock so much understanding. If you ever got confused in the newspaper, you're like, what section is this? Oh, the sports, okay. You can just kind of go to it and understand. Your brain goes, oh, that's where we are. That's what we're talking about. So if genres unlock so much understanding, they also keep people trapped in misunderstanding. I'm convinced many Christians, um, in fear of making God look bad, avoid whole topics and books of the Bible. They have read things. I hope you have read things, because it means you're reading your Bible. I hope you have read things in the Bible that you go, oh, what? Man, if my opponents, if opponents of Christianity ever saw that, they'd go to town on people who are Christians. A lot of that is genre and not understanding what's going on. Look at this quote from David King. God communicates with us, not through vague impressions, but through words and sentences and paragraphs. He speaks intelligibly and precisely, marshalling a beautiful array of genres to do so. With the help of his spirit, we can understand what is written. All right, let me quickly go through this. Why this series? Write down these four things. I have four things that are my desire out of a series like this. Number one is I want you to seek Jesus and live. What does that mean? How exactly do we do this? 
Jesus tells us. Learn your Bible. Learn your Bible is what Jesus would say. It sounds simple enough. It sounds straightforward, but hang on a second. The fiercest opponents of Jesus knew their Bible better than any person in this room right now. The people that led the charge in killing Jesus were Bible scholars. They were certifiable experts on these three giant categories, law, prophets, writings that make up the Old Testament, but it wasn't enough. Listen to this rebuke from Jesus. Jot down John 5.39. John 5.39. Jesus is talking to the Bible experts around him, and he calls them out with this. You search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. So there's two cautions going on here. Many point out that it's possible to know your Bible but miss Jesus. That's an obvious rebuke. That's a caution, right? Don't be like the Bible experts who knew their Bible but didn't know Jesus. That's a giant caution. As we move forward with genres, it's a giant caution. But there's a second warning. Don't neglect searching the scriptures. Baby out with the bathwater, which is a horrible metaphor, by the way. Don't ever throw your baby out with the bathwater. That's horrific and dark. Baby out with the bathwater is, I'm not going to get super nerdy about the Bible because I might miss Jesus. I don't want to get heady and Bible experts like the Bible experts that Jesus rebuked. Nonsense. He doesn't rebuke them searching the scriptures. He doesn't rebuke them for having all this knowledge. So the second warning is don't neglect searching the scriptures. He didn't rebuke the expertise and knowledge of the Bible, only that it wasn't paired with trust in Jesus. It wasn't formed in relationship. So seek Jesus by searching the scriptures. If you're going to write something down this morning, that might be good. Seek Jesus by searching the scriptures. It's not an either or. Seek Jesus by searching the scriptures. Life is found in its pages because he's revealed there. Not in and of itself. All right, number two. I want you planted by a river. We just read this in Psalm chapter 1, those who delight in the Lord. The ongoing fruit in and out of season, that song that we just sang, that grace finds us on a wedding day and at the graveside, we all get there eventually, friends. I love that verse 1 or 2 has in the everyday and the mundane. Grace finds us. The Bible speaks to us in all of life. Fruit comes in season and out of season over the long haul when we're planted by it. This ongoing fruit comes with really learning to live biblically. So this series is long-haul kind of work. By faith, we plant in one season, trusting we'll reap a harvest in another season. Here's number three. I want to fulfill the Great Commission. I want to fulfill the Great Commission. I want, I want, I want. There's one more. As a fellow disciple-maker... Like the rest of you Christians, I am commanded by my master to make disciples. As a disciple, I'm called to make disciples and to teach them 
all that Jesus commanded them. Not just knowledge, but to walk in it, to live in it, to experience, to swim in it, to be immersed in it. So I want to fulfill the Great Commission. Here's what it means as a preacher, that I dare not cherry-pick my favorite parts. I dare not ignore parts that are muddy, hard to understand, or convicting to my life personally. I trust that it's all about Him. And so I find joy in searching for the meaning. I find joy in parts of the Bible that I just don't understand. So I say, Jesus, like those two on the road to Emmaus, help me get this. I don't get this. In fact, this actually sounds like it makes you look really bad. Help me understand this. How is this about you? I'm so excited for you because like mine, your faith grows as you go deeper in the scriptures. Your love and admiration for the author of Genesis to Revelation, the 66 books that make up the Bible, grows exponentially as you see how these genres, how these pieces fit together, and you go, no way. It's it's all right there. All the movies and stories you love, it introduces a character that you think is a bit player, and you go, whoa, all the way along, that was the one. Now I get it. We love those stories. God's the author of stories. Here's one more, and I close with this. I want to grow our church. Now I know it's like, I want the world. It sounds like I'm just like, man, Dave's this greedy, selfish guy. I hope all of these are like for our sake, right? For everyone. I want these things for us. I want to grow our church. Here's what I mean by that. To live biblically, we must first think biblically. Hear me, this requires us all. To live biblically, we must think biblically. So how do we think and practice salvation, right living, how to do church? What do we do when people sin? How do you restore those who are repentant? How should we be interacting with our unsaved neighbors? How should we be interacting with the government? These require all of us, church, neighborhood Bible church, to live biblically. And to live biblically, we have to think biblically and understand biblically. This series is going to go a long ways toward that. I I want you to see how often the church is held responsible for so many different aspects in church life. Let me take sin, for instance. Matthew 18 says, here's what you do when someone sins. You go to that person. That doesn't work. You bring someone else. It has this list of things that you do. Many people who wear the name of Christian do something different. They go and talk to someone else. How dare you? That's wicked. That's called gossip. That's a fire that just sets things in motion. You follow the scriptures. You go to the person. You don't gain an army of people. You know what the last step is? Bring it to the church. Guys, here's what's so telling about this. It doesn't say bring it to the Pope. It doesn't say bring it to the pastor. It doesn't say bring it to the elders. It doesn't say bring it to the denominational board who is in Sacramento, California. It doesn't say bring it to the high chancellor supreme or whatever title you want to give someone. Bring it to the church. Final step in Matthew 18. Read it yourself. How about the work of the church? Acts 6. Widows are being not cared for. 
There's some ethnic factions going on, feeding programs that needed to be done, and the work needed to be distributed. Do you know what they didn't say? Hire people at the church. Pay people to do the work. That's what a lot of churches do. They hire more and more staff. It's not what it says. It doesn't say hand it off to the government. Let government deal with foster kids. Let me tell you, when the church handed that off a long time ago, things went south. It is time, church, to reclaim it. So we don't give it to staff. We don't give it to government pastors. I mean, to government programs. We don't give it to the pastors. In fact, this passage actually was saying it's freeing the pastors up to do what only they were supposed to be doing. It, was, it gave it to the church. Church, everyone be doing your part to come in and jump in and do this work. In the realm of teaching, listen to how the church is held responsible in Galatians 1. The whole church is held responsible for slipping away after false prophets. Who has bewitched you, Galatians, that you would follow another gospel? Not that there's another gospel to follow. Are the church leaders held to a higher responsibility and accountability? Yes, absolutely. But do you, Christian, get to pin it? Well, it's my leaders. It's these pastors. No. It's the church that's held responsible for it. Oh, I have more here, but I'm not going to keep going. I'm going to stop. Here's the staggering reality that I want you to get. It's not only the church that is held responsible for these things. It is the church that is competent to do these things. When I say I want to grow our church, would that we would have six services and have to meet all the needs. Every person sitting here is a life and a soul that matters to God. That's a great thing. But when I say grow our church, I'm not just talking numerically. In fact, primarily, I'm talking about growing us up as Christians. Van, would you come on up right now? We're going to wrap up with one song as we dismiss. And as we do that, let me have you just close your eyes for a moment. I want to say to the members of Neighborhood Bible Church, that you have an active role in your church and it goes way beyond attending. I hope that we continue as a church, continue to pray and sing and greet and give and serve, yes. But so much more than that. We're called to go deep in our walk with God. We're called to delight in the conversation that God is having with us. We're called to respond to God in prayer. The Psalms give us voice of how we answer God in all the different seasons of life. God, I'm convinced that we will grow as a church. As Ephesians says, we are to build ourselves up in love. You grow us, you build us, but we actually cooperate with that growth. So God, as we look deeper into the scriptures... God, I pray that you would grow us up. I pray that our midweek life would inform our Sunday morning life and vice versa. God, we love you. We delight in you. Draw us deeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's where I'm going with this, you guys. For two more weeks, next week, we're going to look at the law. How would Jesus read the law of God? Reading over Jesus' shoulder. So for two weeks, we're just going to look at law, introduction, and law. After two more weeks, we're going to jump into 2 Timothy this summer. Really looking forward to it. Um, And love you guys. Let's sing, and then we'll dismiss.